Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. This episode is brought to you by Mural, a digital workspace for visual collaboration. At Voltage Control, we use Mural to facilitate engaging and productive meetings and workshops from anywhere. Mural gives teams the means, methods, and freedom to collaborate visually. Use their suite of facilitation superpowers to control the virtual room and solve tough problems as a team with their pre-built templates and guided methods. To see for yourself why companies like IBM, Atlassian, and E-Trade rely on Mural, start your 30-day trial at Mural.co. That's M-U-R-A-L dot C-O. Today, I'm with Sonny Brown, founder of Sonny Brown, Inc., and the Center of Deep Self-Design, where she helps people design their best selves. Welcome to the show, Sonny. Can I call you D? <laughs> as long as you don't call me Doug, I think I'm Dougie Fresh. Okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I might just, I might slip up and call you D. D is perfectly fine. So, how did you get started? How did Sunny Brown become Sunny Brown Inc.? Well, there were many roads that led to that incarnation, but first was that I could not keep a job. So, I was fired many times. So, there's like the shadow side of it, and then there's the accidental, you know, uh, serendipitous aspects of it. And then there's the origin story, like the conditioning from family stuff. So there's all wrapped up in that, you know, but first and foremost, I could not, I got fired a lot. And when I say a lot, I mean, definitely over 13 times. And so I was good at getting jobs, but I wasn't good at keeping jobs which is a hallmark of entrepreneurism, but I didn't realize that at the time. I just thought that everyone was an idiot. (laughs) And somehow I was, didn't belong in a cage or whatever. It was very, I was very um, unruly as an employee. It was actually legitimately hard for me to keep a job. Even though I was good, I was insubordinate. And so eventually I just recognized that, oh, I need to be my own boss. I didn't know the boss of what, but serendipitously and sort of circuitously, I ended up in the Bay Area, which is, you know, ripe with ideas and opportunity and innovation and potential. And that was a, a great place for somebody like me. And so I ended up working at The Grove, which is a visual thinking company. And that was my introduction to visual literacy and visual thinking. I only worked there two years and then I left and I started my own company, which again, I think, I, I mean, I think unless you have entrepreneurism in your family, it's, it's almost always accidental and it's not, it's accidental and on purpose, but it's not necessarily something, it's like something that finds you and you find it, you know, there was a lot of ingredients that made that thing come to life. So tell us about the experience at the Grove. How did that shape what you're doing now? It was a great experience in the sense that I was from, like I had just graduated with a master's in public policy, which always surprises people. But I was going to work in the public sector and um, I, I really, I didn't even identify as a creative at that time. I didn't like the term creative. I didn't like the term artistic and I didn't, I was like very pragmatic and practical. And so um, I was not looking for anything of the sort. 
in terms of ending up at the Grove. And so I was very skeptical. So when I was first there, I was just hired as the executive assistant because I had, I had been other people's assistants, but I didn't always mention I'd been fired a lot. So I was very, um, <laughs> I was very uh, questionable about my job acquisition, you know, ethics, but I did always end up getting jobs. And so eventually I was, I was working for the president, which was David Sibbett, who's like the grandfather of visual thinking in, in the United States. And that was very lucky because I was mentored by him and then eventually mentored by Dave Gray and other kind of like, he wouldn't want me to call him a grandfather, but another godfather, if you will, of visual thinking. And Certainly so, a luminary. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so those were happenstantial. And, but when I first was at the Grove, I was really skeptical about visual thinking and I thought it was kind of silly, to be honest. So what was the thing that really changed for you when you, you said it, you used to think it was kind of silly. Like what, what was the, what really connected the dots for you to realize like, wow, this is, this is something deeper. Well, so it was, it was like application. So, cause I, I was first a graphic recorder. I don't know if you know that about me, but I started as a graphic recorder. So a person who would go and do live large scale visualizations of auditory content. And what I observed in the process of learning how to be that which did come naturally to me. It was, it was a skill that kind of mapped itself onto my own skills readily, which was surprising. But through that process, I, I recognized that there was a lot of benefits of visual thinking that were happening to me cognitively. So I was remembering content really well. I was organizing it uh, in my mind and on paper really skillfully. I was um, comprehending it and sort of like getting insights. And, and when you're a graphic recorder, you go and you listen to every topic imaginable. So I noticed that my relationship with the content was really rich and really substantive. And I had to attribute it to what I was doing visually because it wasn't like I was special. You know, it was like, oh, my God, <laughs> there's something meaningful to the brain about this way of thinking. And that's when I became a, a convert. You know, I was convert. That's incredible. It, it makes me think about um, something that I've been talking with a lot of folks about lately this notion of multi-threaded meetings where when we're in mural and everyone is live scribing at the same time now it's certainly not at the level of proficiency and 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 craftsmanship um that you know you were taking to the job as a, as a graphic recorder but if we're all visually working in the meeting through mural or miro or any of these other tools and live capturing what we're hearing we or we are synthesizing on the fly we're we're adding nuance to what we hear because it's our own like filter. Even if we are attempting to be purest as possible, we're gonna something's gonna happen there. And when you look across the room of what everyone wrote down, you get this really rich picture of what was said because it's like not only what was said, but this is diversity of thought layered on top of it. That's cool. That's cool that you're doing that. And absolutely, it makes complete sense, right? It's like this. It's like this beautiful display of insight that is unique to each person, but it's not a thin relationship. It's a really thick relationship between you and what you're trying to understand. And that's why it's so valuable. And so then of course I became an evangelist about that. And that was in a different chapter of my journey. And um, I'm really grateful for that because at this point I don't, I, I don't do anything without having some visual thinking component. It's just how I work and how I think and how I explain things to people so it just changed everything about how I function. It's really grateful. That's really cool. You know, I, it, it also makes me think about active listening and how uh, one of our skills as a facilitator for active listening is paraphrasing. And 
if you think about it, only one person can paraphrase it at one time because if we were all doing that, it would be a cacophonous insanity and you know the, the whole power of paraphrasing would be diminished because we're all talking over each other. <laughs> but if someone's live scribing or if the whole room is live scribing, everyone's essentially paraphrasing, but in a in a non auditory sense, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why uh, I teach it to educators and then they teach it to students because you're making um, when you're like typing. I mean, there's a lot of research about typing versus writing in terms of note taking. And the research is really clear that when you use visual note-taking instead of typing on your laptop and just trying to like bang out as much as you can, you know, based on what the teacher's saying, and similarly with handwriting, the knowledge and the insight is much, much deeper when you're using visual note-taking because you're synthesizing. So you're like in active, con- you're actively distilling content on purpose and you're like dis- discerning what to leave and what to put on the page. And then you map it to like some kind of icon or image so it, it like comes to life. And so um, I think that that experience is true for everybody. Like it's, I mean, I've taught it all over the world and I've not, it's not ever been somebody who was like, no, I prefer my laptop typing in terms of knowledge acquisition. Like I've not, yeah, I've has, never met that person, you know? You know, it also dawned on me, has the, has the research um, explored the notion of the, the spatial aspect of uh-huh. um, handwritten notes. Because if you think about typed notes, it's rectilinear. It's right. always left to right. It's up, yeah, down, it's, totally. it's squares, There's it's no edges. Structure. But like you, yeah, you have yeah. that structure is enforced upon you. And right. if you're, you're having to think through that structure or just flow through it and even move your hand to the upper, upper right and over here and down, uh-huh. it's not, it's so liber- it's more liberating. Maybe. Yeah, that's right. And like Tony Buzan has this great page where he um, talks about, uh, why that most kids perceive note taking as punishment. They refer to it as punishment because that's how it feels because they're confined and constrained by what you can do. And so when you make the page like a blank space, it's basically a field to play in. And then you can show relationships between things and you can show spatial um, content and that has like a, a, an architecture that is not inherently not in listing or in writing lists. And so there's like nine other things that he, it, he has that great book, Mind Map, that his original, but uh, it's, it just describes how it's like, it's, it's like a black and white versus a color television. It's just a, you know, it's a whole different world. And so it's universally impactful in that way. So it was easy for me to fall in love with it after I got over myself, you know, I was like, Oh shit, this is, this is like a power tool. And nobody knows it. Like very few people were interested in it or thought it was, you know, worth exploring. And it was sort of something you put on the side, like you go to art class and do that, or you be weird and do that, you know, like this or guy. these geeks at the, in the corner of the conference, just yeah. kind of plugging away. And That's <laughs> right. And so I was like, well, I would like to normalize the shit out of this. And so that was, that was, you know, I was very passionate about it for a long time. And at this point I've exhausted that passion, (laughs) but I, I don't need to have it because other people have it now. So I'm like, cool. The torch has been passed and more power to all of you. And we talked a little bit about that earlier in kind of the pre-show chat. We both have books coming out on the Mm non-obvious press. Mm -hmm. And I was asking you about the one I wanted to write. You you know, you're, (laughs) you were writing a book on, on, uh, you know, graphic recording. Uh, yeah, it was like graphic and, doodling. Yeah, yeah, and I was I was curious to hear about that. And you said 
Oh, I, I wasn't inspired. So you were, I mean, you were just yeah. explaining how you kind of lost <laughs> the flame a bit on right. because you've been doing it for a while and yes. you know it in and out. And yes. it's hard to take that, uh, that, that kind of new. Yeah. Like the beginner's mind is, is such an important state of mind and that my relationship with that is not in that state, you know? So I couldn't like strong arm my way into writing that book. And I love how meta that experience for you and, and going through the conversation with the publisher was in relation to the topic you're actually going to write about because you talked about not being part of your being or your state right now, the passion right now. And so it, it, it must have felt inauthentic. It did. Yeah, it did. It felt forced for sure. And, and I told him I, that I could do it. It's like, it's not that I don't have the ability to sit down and type some shit on a page that makes sense. You know, like I can do it, but why would I do that? Like, what, what is the value of uh, a factory? Like I'm not a factory. And so, and I mean, I can be, but I don't want to be. And, um, it was just, I just was like, fuck it. I'll just, you know, he can get mad. I mean, I mean, I literally woke up that morning. I was like, what if he sued me? (laughs) I was like, I don't know what he's going to do. No idea what he's going to do. Cause he had like us, the whole, all of our books were going to be published in a certain time. Remember? Like all all together, so I didn't. Then COVID happened. That's right, and I was hoping <laughs> that he would have considered that, and that some of his other because you turned yours in on time, did you not? Yes, and well, that's what I mean. So it didn't affect you. you oh God. Well, we're still we're 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 not on time. <laughs> yeah, but we you're... turned it in, but then there was a lot of lot of edits. So right, right. We're still we're still hard at work on it, but it's great. I mean, I awesome. I found working with them to be really fantastic. From oh, the, good. Get it right. You know, let's let's take the time to get it right. So, oh, yeah. yeah, he's awesome, and he really impressed me that day. And so it was nice to arrive at the topic that I am interested in. I have something to say about and. For me, the most energetic time when I'm learning something is where I'm like completely convinced that it's valuable. I have internalized quite a bit of it, but I haven't like reverse engineered what it is that I did. So it's like when I was a graphic recorder, I was doing that. You know, I had some training, but I basically trained myself. And then I studied what I was doing. And then I was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. So for me, it's like, that was similar with the deep self design stuff. It's like, I've been applying and practicing this stuff for like 13 years. And now I'm studying what I'm doing because I want to teach it. So it's like, so I apparently have these cycles of, of that. And I was not in that cycle with rapid doodling for problem solving. And I was like, why would I fake this? This is just completely not true for me at all. So thankfully Rohit was awesome. And he was like, great. I don't want you to write that. And I was like, I almost kissed him through the screen. I was like, God bless you, because it was getting painful. And, and what's the title of the new book? Well, I don't know yet exactly. It's still in, in process, but it's something about the non-obvious guide to being confident. And then, or maybe to inner confidence. And then the subtitle is without being arrogant or inauthentic, something like that. Yeah. And I, I love this notion of, you know, confidence is really important when it comes to facilitation. That's why we we both run facilitation practices um, just to get people um, ex- experience with the tools and with new ways of doing things. And I also feel that authenticity matters so much. The authenticity allows us to be confident and vice versa. They kind of have this interesting dual dual purpose or this kind of linked connectiveness. 
But I've always been confused by what what is authenticity? What does it even mean? So like, and, and similarly with integrity. So this is just like a sort of weird question philosophically, which is if you're authentically being manipulative, like you're totally committed to that activity, then that is not inauthentic. It's just you're, it's, it's unoptimal. It's suboptimal for who you're dealing with. But like Trump is authentically an asshole. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So yes, I do know what you're saying. I, <laughs> so I don't even know when people describe because I do often get described as authentic. My uh, mother-in-law, she's well, she's family, so she could be blowing smoke at my ass. But she's often like, you know, she's like authenticity is just your engine. And it took me a while. I was like, I don't even know what she's talking about. But then finally, I came up with this definition. So I want to run it by you and see what you think. So what it is maybe is, and I, I'm sure there are people who have done this research, so I'm right on the edge of doing all this great research, which is your internal experience is mapped to your external expression. So in other words, what I'm feeling internally, so if I'm feeling disappointment because somebody didn't respond to my text, when I talk to them, I say, I'm experiencing disappointment about your lack of responding to me and I'm interpreting it. So I'm just saying what's true for me. I'm just speaking with. So I think that's what it is. So, um, and that's a really hard for people, apparently. What do you love about it? Well, you know, it, it's the same thing as like, I think people have, as a society, we have been primed to not disappoint people mm-hmm. and to avoid conflict. Mm-hmm. And so that forces people to be inauthentic. That's true. Because they're in so pursuit true. of this like kind of, this uh, this vibe or this experience or or to avoid it's like yeah to minimize conflict regrets. avoidance is huge yes yeah. yes and it's the same thing as you get a birthday present you don't like and you go oh I love it it's right. like that incongruency of mm. what you're saying and what yeah. you're feeling right and imagine you walk into a room and you know that you need to like pump up that room and get right. everyone excited but you're but not you, feeling it yet you're not feeling it and there's mm-hmm. a pit in your stomach mm-hmm. that you are not that is you're not being authentic well that i think creates anxiety though right because when we're when we're trying to be uh when we're trying to de- defy our actual internal experience that is anxiety provoking so that's problematic, you know? And I mean, I have, it's not like I nail that every time, but I'm definitely have a, a high fidelity to what my experience is and what my truth is. And then I share that, but I'm not undiplomatic. So it's interesting what you're saying about the gift. Like when somebody gives you a gift and you don't really love it, but you're honoring that they gave it to you, like that can still be an authentic experience because you may not love it, but you love that they gave something to you that they thought right. of you. So why, right? why isn't it not customary that we say that? I don't know. I don't think no? our culture is skillful. I think our culture is really immature in a lot of areas and communication and conflict is one of them. A big one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in our facilitation training, we, we, we often uh, work with folks to think about how they can um, t- tap into their inner self and you go much deeper into the internal family system stuff. The stuff that we're saying to do is at least just check in. Yeah. Does your totally. foot hurt? Right. Do you, does your stomach hurt? Yeah. It, it, does it feel Connect hot? To your body. Does there feel? Is there tension in the room? Are you? Or are you bringing that tension? Are you noticing it? Is that tension impacting you? Yeah. Right. That's so helpful, though, Douglas. Like people are so oblivious to their own states, and that is also anxiety provoking. When you're like divorced from your own experience, like how could you not be stressed? How could that not be stressful? To your point, I do go deep and I love that. And But it's also what you're doing with people. That's a revelation for a lot of people. 
just like, oh, oh, I do, I am hungry. Oh, I had no idea. Or, oh, I am disappointed that I wasn't seated with my friend. You know, just anything. And then I often do at the beginning of sessions, I will have them name something that's true for them. And just that simple act of checking in, becoming aware of your your state and yourself, and then declaring it, it's like returning to yourself just for a second. And it brings you into the present moment, and it's really helpful. Yeah, anytime we can have some sort of presencing activity in an opener, it's really powerful. I know. And you know what's funny? Talking about authenticity. Because, like, I tell, I think I was with you one time when we – I have people often draw, like, just in, in um, virtual facilitation, they'll draw some some emotion on a sticky note. And, like, I will just ask, how do you – what is your state of emotion right now? And then draw an emoji. And then, you know, they're all – they're the ones that are permissible, right? There's permissible social emotional experiences. So it'll be, like, the craziest one might be that someone's, like, frazzled, you know? But they would never be, like, I'm – depressed you know like, no mm-hmm. so there's like there's social norms and that that's and again it's like is that inauthenticity or is that caretaking of the group or is that like not even knowing maybe how you feel it's like it's just it's complex you know yeah it's interesting because if you're if you're intentionally trying to deceive <laughs> you're being authentic there's different levels are you being authentic to yourself there's intention and then someone else could perceive you as being inauthentic because you're like, wait, he's totally lying to me, <laughs> right? So, so yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, integrity, right. I think, is easier for me because I always define integrity because, uh-huh. you know, it shows up on so many like, companies' value statements and I don't even know. I think most of the time they don't uh-huh. even think about what it means. It's like, oh, yeah, it needs to say integrity. They don't even know what it you is. Know, resourcefulness. <laughs> you're like, everybody but wants that for Integrity sure. is just yeah. you do what you say you're going to do. Say you're going to do. Um so, okay, so what if I say I'm going to, uh, like, throw water on Chet when he's sleeping? That's integrity. And I do it. You follow through. <laughs> but if you say you're going to build a wall and you don't build a wall, that's not a lot of integrity. But that means that Hitler had integrity, yeah. right? So, it's like, if you say, and, I, and it's controversial, but that, based on the yeah, definition, that like, would mean that. That's the thing. That like, I think people, they're going to take these words and they mm-hmm. meet, they, they, they glorify them yeah, they as being anything. good qualities. And sure, yeah. if you have good intent, like, right. you had to combine them with other things, because that segues nicely into something that we were getting excited about during the pre-show chat. And this is just like, good versus bad. And um, and binary thinking, how just how dangerous it is. Yeah, it is. It's one of the thinking distortions. So there's there's a really great list of um, thinking distortions that has like eight on it. But this is also segues into Zen practice, which is central to my entire life. But one of the thinking distortions is making things binary, and it's so tempting. And I do it even though I have a devout practice around not doing that, around seeing the nuance. It's still, it's the brain. Like we are wired to summarize very quickly for survival purposes. It's not like we're bad if we do that. That is just biologically, it's like a biological imperative. And so in order to soften that inclination to just label somebody as like stupid or smart or a desirable, undesirable, or deplorable and undeplorable or whatever, we have to practice. You actually have to activate the antithesis of that way of thinking by purposefully seeing the shades of gray. It is a practice and it's super powerful. And so I like that you're interested in that too, because 
as facilitators, I gamify this stuff, you know, like I try to teach people that in gaming. That one in particular always blows people's dome pieces off because they're like, oh my God, I completely thought my boss was a jerk just by definition. And I'm like, did you consider the, all the other facets of your boss? And they're like, no. I'm like, why would you? You know, it's not a practice you have. You know, I think that it, it applies across the spectrum too, right? The, um, like uh, a lot of times, especially folks that are brand new to facilitation, they're so curious, like, how do I deal with difficult people? And, and, and that, that first of all is binary thinking. Like you're, you're, the fact that you're asking that question means that you're thinking there's, there's yeah, non-difficult people and difficult right. people. Yeah. And, I, and it's funny because when I started facilitating, I never asked that question. I wasn't worried about it. And I think that has to do with conflict avoidance too. So if people are asking that question underneath it is a fear that they're going to have to deal with conflict or perceived conflict. And I, conflict avoidance was not my family's strategy. So I, I'm, I usually turn toward and address it depending on the depth of the, you know, wounding or whatever, but it's like, it's, it doesn't, it's not fearful for me. And also I haven't encountered these quote, difficult people. <laughs> like I know there are people that can talk over other people and there are people that want to ask a lot of questions and sort of can derail some of your activities I know there are people that try to sidle up to you and, and get and like make alliances with the facilitator, but I don't think of them as difficult. I think of them as people, just human people. What, what about the people that are desperately trying to help you? Oh, I love those people. It's always this stuff is so sweet because it's like, how do you say, no, thank you. You're going to make it way harder on me if you try to help, right? Like this. Because <laughs> when I was a graphic recorder, I used to always carry these big walls. You know, you got to carry these 32 square foot walls everywhere. And you would not believe how many people try to help me because I was like 5'5". Five, five. And they'd be like, she can't carry that up four flights of stairs. And I'd be like, it weighs two pounds. I don't, it's it's not hard. But uh, I would always just very gently be like, no, thank you so much. I really appreciate your interest. But I it'll, I, it'll go smoothly if I just do it because I've done it so many times. But there are all those types in meetings. But to your point, what does it mean if they're difficult? Maybe they just need something and they need you to be aware of it. And you just look for the need, the underlying need and see if you can support that or not. You know, I I really liked Michael Wilkinson's framing on this. Um, I think in his book, the, I forget, it's so many secrets of facilitation. I can't even remember how many there are. There might be like, just, let's just say so many secrets of facilitation. Secrets? Yeah, well, he's unveiling the secrets, you know, facilitation. The secret yeah, teaching. it's amazing. So um, he had this whole his whole thing is dysfunctions. How do you deal with dysfunctions? And so I like that framing a lot better because there's just there are all sorts of them, and and how do we how do we think about addressing them as they happen? And the individuals aren't dysfunctional, right? Maybe eliciting a dysfunction at that moment. Yeah, or like a malfunction. Yeah, yeah. you know. A little breakdown. A little short circuit. Yeah. <laughs> Which is and an I amazing. Have those too, you know? I mean, when are they going to come out with like, so they've done, you know, they've done E.T. with Stranger Things. They've, they've done Karate Kid with Cobra Kai. Um, <laughs> when are they going to come out with the short circuit, like the modern short oh, circuit? Oh, dude. How can they top the original? It'd be so hard. <laughs> It'd be impossible. Oh my God. I got to watch that tonight. It's Friday night. That thank you for picking my movie. (laughs) 
There's something about Cobra Kai that I was Dude. thinking about earlier. Oh my God, yes. I think it's just this notion of this good versus bad. You know, I was yes. thinking about that when we were talking yeah. about good versus bad. And it's really interesting to me how they're, how the, the more naive karate, even though like, look, let's, let's face it. Cobra Kai is like a series that is like not really tapping into any kind of profound wisdom, <laughs> but it's funny that the, the more naive version of Karate Kid was like, Danny's just like, and Miyagi are just like the source of good. Yeah. And now the the more modern portrayal, as they're older, they're much more complex. You know, right. they're both doing things. And that that's like, the truth about people is that yes. we're complex. And that's what people don't want to grapple with because it requires an awareness of, of things that can't be tucked into a box really neatly. And the brain does not like that. The brain is, I mean, sometimes it like it likes, you know, it's stimulated by it. But ultimately, it needs a summation. And so it's like, that's why you have all these characters that are easy to hate. Like in Inspector Gadget, you know, what's the dude? Claw? Like, he doesn't even have a face. He's just the bad dude behind the desk without a face. And and then when you look at comic books or, like, graphic novels, they always go into their backstory. I mean, Black Panther, they nailed it by making those characters so complex. That, to me, felt relatable. So it's like so fascinating how that starts from storytelling when you're five, you know, even Star Wars. But like, I love Star Wars because, dude, I don't Hero's know. Journey. I mean, you can't, yeah. you kind of can't go wrong with the Hero's Journey. And in fact, um, you know, that's something Daniel Stillman and I talk about a lot. Like you can, um, using that in your workshop design. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Like taking each person through some transformational experience with, Related to the content, yeah. Like basically, from start to finish, we're going to go through this this uh, hero's journey where we go into the abyss and come out together with the elixir. Oh, that makes me just like want to weep. It's so beautiful, and it's like even if you don't choose, because you're not a part of the journey, you have to answer the call. So life will probably summon you, but if you don't answer, then you don't go on the journey. You know, and I've always been fascinated by people that are not available for the journey, you know, um, cause it's just not safe. I mean, it's not by definition, but it's for me, it's always worth it to step into challenges. And I think that is also a quality of entrepreneurs is that we are kind of thrilled by freaking ourselves out. Like <laughs> uncertainty, ambiguity. Yes, dude. We're just like, we're, we're like those people that like it. We're kind of into it. And I, over the years I've had to temper my own instinct to do that. And I know you have too. Like, I mean, I've been a workaholic for a long time and I'm like in recovery, but it's also just because I like being challenged and I like not knowing everything because it's such a thrill when you get some new insight or knowledge. It's like, I feel like I'm like the Hulk. I'm like, whoa, I'm growing muscularly. Like I'm huge, but you can get addicted to that. You know? So it's like, Every now and then I'm always like on a weekend, I'm like, girl, you don't need to like read 40 sutras this weekend. You can just be an idiot. Like just be an idiot, you know? Yeah. Just give the brain a little break. Go on a nature bath. Yeah. You know, I, I told you I'm going to install my hillbilly hot tub. Is that okay? Just, you got to, I know. My I'm sauna more... is getting installed right as we speak. Oh, dude, that's amazing. It's important. It is. You know, I, as you were talking about this, like uh, some metaphors were coming up for me around we're taking people through this risky kind of thing. And there's a, the, there's risk that you're taking, and it, it reminded me of 
rapids, right? Yeah. So whitewater mm-hmm. uh, rafting, mm-hmm. and you always hire the guide so that you, <laughs> you know you don't go kill yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> Facilitation is like the mental equivalent of the whitewater rafting guide. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If we're gonna go on this risky mental journey, let's uh-huh. make sure we have a shepherd or or that guide yeah. to make sure that you know we're, we're gonna wear our helmets, of course, but yeah. we're gonna make sure that we don't bash our heads on the rocks, even if we have helmets on. Well, and that's why the facilitator is so important because they have to trust you completely, and I don't mean they have to, meaning you can't conduct a meeting, but for a ex- successful experience, they really need to trust you. And you, the way that I think about it is, is that I demonstrate what I want them to, how, how I want them to be. So if something goes wrong, I will name that and own that. You know, if I don't have the answer to something, I will not pretend that I do. You know, like if I um, want somebody to collaborate with me, then I will invite them to come and collaborate with me and then mimic that in their group. So it makes you more human in some ways if you're, I mean, we, you know, there's every kind of facilitator under the sun. So it's not like there's some gold standard or whatever. That's just my style. It's like, I want them to understand that perfection is not what we're up to. We're up to being humans and um, sort of, I think that's authenticity right there. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But I could be being like, what if I had an inner, cause I have an inner perfectionist. I'm actually working with this part of me. Uh, I, that is authentically perfectionistic. <laughs> You know? Well, I meant the, the vulnerability you were mm-hmm. talking about. Like, if you don't know the answer, like, yeah, we're let's talk just about name it. it. We're going to make it. Yeah. That. I mean, and I've been making so many bloopers, Douglas, you would not believe the bloopers on the United Nations project because I'm learning as I go. And, and I told you that it's like, I'm jump, we're leaping and we're building our parachute while we're falling. And the client's not that aware of it. That is an internal awareness that Jesse and I both have. But, for me, it's like, oh my God, it's like I'm back to being a newbie. Like the stuff I do, like the other day, I just flung everyone into breakout rooms just because I impulsively pushed the fucking button. Like it was like, what are you doing? And then, well, that's the world we in, we're in. Know, you know, it's like so it's going to happen even. I run the breakout rooms in Zoom daily. Yeah, I bet. I still, it's, right? I still <laughs> hit things accidentally. And that's partially because, here's the thing. I don't know if you've seen the book, The Design of Everyday Things. Uh-huh. Oh, man, it's a classic design book. I know. So great. I've heard of it. I don't have In it, fact, the, do- the doors that are poorly designed are actually named Norman Doors after the author. Oh. Well, because he points out, don't blame yourself Mm-hmm. Because the door is poorly designed. Right. If there is a giant, like you ever gone up to a door that has a, a giant handle on it, uh-huh. like you're supposed to just grab the handle and pull it toward you. Yeah. And you pull it and then it doesn't move because it, you're supposed to push, push it. it. <laughs> so on the push side, there needs to be a push plate. And on the pull side, there needs to be a pull handle. Right. Like you're not and the so, dope here. <laughs> yeah. So any, exactly. You're not the, you're not the dope. Don't, and he's like, never blame yourself for bad design. If someone designed it poorly. And so that's what everyone does. Like my mom always tells me, like I don't understand computers. I'm like, well, that means they didn't design it so that you could understand it. Oh, that's very nice of you to say that because it does make people feel stupid yes. when they can't do. People things. always say yeah. they're stupid when it's like, man, the, someone did a poor job of getting you there. Yeah, and um, uh-huh. I think Zoom breakout rooms have a lot of room for growth. For yeah, and I think they're working on that, and I know they're making new features and changes. Yeah, uh, like they just did the gallery view; you can shuffle it around. That's the other thing too, though. It's like all these new things constantly coming, so there's there's capabilities you don't even know you have, 
And then there's some that fall off. So it's just a constantly changing environment. And so I just made mistakes left and right. And then I remember what it's like to be a beginner. And thankfully, I have this foundational practice and that confidence about facilitating and making mistakes and just knowing that it's okay. But if I were a beginning facilitator, it would be so stressful, be super stressful to try to step in. Absolutely. And the thing is, is you just found, in a way, it's almost like fracking, right? Like you'd hit the depths of like, what's possible. You know, you would become an expert in facilitation. And then this new fissure opened up because of remote. And now there's a new area to play in and a new area to fail in. But at the same time, you, you weren't building a parachute while falling. You know what I mean? Like you were, you were in the squirrel suit, like kind of right, already like, right. like a terminal velocity and, and <laughs> floating down. And you're like, Oh, let me assemble a parachute. Cause then I'm going to float right. down even slower. So yeah, I think there's right. something beautiful in that. Right. Because like you can lean on the experience you have to then go into yes. new unchart- uncharted territory. And that uncertainty while that's it's scary right. is, mm-hmm. is also leads to a lot of opportunity. Totally. And that's why I love uh, facilitating with expert facilitators because we all know that like we're, there's an, all, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the terrors and the weird delusions and the distorted ideas you have about the practice when you first go are gone. They're just burnt off by experience. And then, so it's just, there's a lot of joy for me. And um, cause I online, I always have a co-facilitator. I, if, if it's longer than like an hour and a half, you know what I mean? Um, and, and I, I love trusting the, the capacity of that person. Cause it's crazy. Cause the other day, uh, Jesse and I were like, I could tell she was looking for something in the back end of zoom. And I could see from her body language that she had no clue where it was. And so I just started talking, you know, I was like, here's why we're doing this. And this is the value of it. And I asked the people questions and I was just doing it to fill in the gap so that she could, cause I looked at her again. I was like, okay, she found it. And now I'm going to close. But that's like a tango that we have because we work together so often, but it's just, it's very sweet. It's a very sweet process to have. What you're describing is so much harder in the in the virtual space too, because of the the signals mm-hmm. we have. You know, when we're in the room together, totally. vibing, whether it's Daniel or John or Eli mm-hmm. or any of the facilitators I fil- facilitate mm-hmm. with quite often, it's like you can feel it almost in the air. Like I don't, we don't even have to make yeah. eye contact necessarily. It's just like, oh, I know they're still riffing mm-hmm. and then and mm-hmm. you know it's like almost like you, you know you can tell someone's looking at you so when they're done and, mm-hmm. and looking at you and ready like boom yeah. you just got <laughs> the, so i feel like you know what you were doing is pro move to you know be peering through the Aware. tools and trying to read mm-hmm. the, the vague signals we do have in virtual yeah it's so funny you're talking about this because jesse and i were talking about this this morning when you were asking about like my origin story, so part of my early conditioning had to do with hypervigilance. So I was very aware of who, what emotional state people were in and what their next move was likely to be. So I'm like really attentive to body language. And that for me is still very available in Zoom. Like I, this, I mean, I can tell, and Jesse was making fun of me this morning. She was like, oh my God, girl, you call, you name people that they have a question before they have even unmuted themselves or even know they have a question. But it's because I'm watching their body language. When people are about to ask a question, they, they do things. They move forward. They lean toward the camera. They kind of like gesture in these bizarre ways. Sometimes they stop and start. 
And so for me, that, that visual and gestural information is still there. So I just, I just be like, Hey Frank, it seems like you want to say something. And then Jesse was just like, she was making fun of me because she was like, that is so weird that you, (laughs) but I'm so sensitive to it, you know? And I thought, I thought that was normal, but then I realized, oh yeah, no, that's my like trauma. I was like, (laughs) basically that's the gift of trauma. (laughs) You know, that was one of the things that really jumped out to me when you were telling me about internal family systems and giving me the whole lowdown there. And I found it really fascinating that, you know, things that can be, that were previously traumatic or, you know, these, um, you know, I can't remember the internal family systems parlance, but, you know, these guards, these managers that are kind of there to, that, that were created because, because of old wounds are part of yourself and, and they can be, they can sometimes be disruptive, but they can also serve a function. They can give you superpowers that other people don't have. Yeah, they do. Absolutely. They're 100% really powerful. And that's one of mine is like, I have a, a, a manager who's very watchful. And so it's, a, it is a superpower. Now the problem is I can't turn it off. So like if I'm, for example, in a mediating, like between my husband and his mom, it will kind of be exhausting for me because I'm, I know that they're going to have an argument 10 minutes before they do, because I can see where the tones are changing and what the language, how the language is changing. I can see them turning like bodily body language, turning away from each other. I can see their like a color of their skin gets redder and redder, but they're not like you were saying, people are not aware of what's happening internally to them. So they're not yet aware. So for both of them, the energy, the intensity has to be a certain threshold for before they notice. But for me, I notice it like way early and it's exhausting Cause I'll just be like, dudes, like I'm gonna walk out now. Cause you, five, four, three, two. Okay, your mom's pissed. You know, like <laughs> it's funny. But as a facilitator, it's really useful. It's a really useful skill, and I'm grateful for the spontaneous. Like going back to IFS, the spontaneous creation of these skill sets based on, and it's not always from trauma. It's just from navigating life, you know. But there is a spontaneous creativity that the body and the mind does to meet whatever circumstances are there. And that's why I have such uh, gratitude for how wise and um, skillful all of our systems are. So even if a person is quote difficult, I respect that there's some aspect of what they're doing that is a protective function and that that's quite healthy for their system. So I just have a deep kind of an abiding appreciation for uh, malfunctions and for uh, strategies that people have because i'm like dude i i'm the same way we're designed the same way i get it you know and i just respect it yeah it's amazing to see what strategies other people use and which ones that we can authentically borrow versus like things that maybe maybe i don't want to touch that maybe that's not so such a good tool for me yeah i wonder how many you can borrow because uh my there's there are qualities that other people have that i wish that i had and I kind of admire that they have them, but I don't personally have them myself. Like what example, 
from an internal family systems, I, I doubt there's much borrowing we can do. And uh, unless we do some deep, long work, I, I was thinking more in the, from the surface level of like, that's an interesting strategy. Oh, I like the way that they're, they're asking folks to, um, who haven't we heard from next or, or you know, I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of um, mm-hmm. fun little prompts and, and questions and things mm-hmm. that we can, we can borrow from folks, but it's critical that we do it authentically. If, if it doesn't feel, if, if it doesn't feel yeah. comfortable, in your belly when you're saying it, like maybe don't leave that one at home. <laughs> right. Oh, I know. And it's like, it, it's so insightful that what you're saying about, you can't really borrow them. Cause I always think about coaches and coaching and how, why would that work in terms of if you're trying to say like, if somebody hires a coach to be more assertive, it's like, well, you could hack it. Like you could put on an assertive demeanor but would it, it wouldn't really be born of your essence. Like you wouldn't really be the source of it. So I always think it's inter- interesting, like the methods that coaches use to attempt to get, you know, great things from people. Like for me, it has to come, they, it has to be natural for them. So, so you just want to unlock their natural strength. I like that word natural. That's, that, I think that's very similar to how I think about authentic, like as, as it being natural. I want to talk about the coaching thing for a second, though. You know, um, I think part of it is people not taking a robust definition of greatness. They've, they've found something that they think is greatness and then they're like glommed onto it and they're like, teach me how to, I think you were talking about like being more confident or whatnot. But what if people more generally said, I just want to, I just want to improve. And what does that mean to improve? And let's explore things more openly. I think that kind of coaching can be really, really interesting, right? Let's, let's see how, let's see how I I, I can explore where my strengths create weakness. You know, in some of the coaching work I've done, it's, it's, it's about how I figure out what I'm not good at. And then is it something that I can improve on? And if not, if it's truly a, a deep-seated weakness, let's delegate that. But let's let that be a part of my self-awareness. If we Coaching should be about becoming more self-aware. That's right. And, and like unburdening some of the parts of you. Because you already have this constellation internally that is very capable. And you and me and everyone we know. And so, but some of it is burdened. And so it has like, intense emotional charge that hasn't been released or it has belief systems that are old and archaic and need to be discarded. But then once they're unburdened, the energy and the natural expression of that aspect of you is just available, which is crazy because that's, that's what Zen practice is all about too. Zen practice that there's the metaphor they use is like wiping dust from a mirror. So your mirror is already there. You can't take, you can't change that. It's just who you are. It's part of the, a natural emergence of, of an incarnated being is that you're a, a, like a reflection of the universe and it just has dust on it. So the practice is about getting some of the dust off. It was a big reversal of the way I grew up, which was like, Oh, you're born in sin. And I was like, wait, so I'm just fundamentally fucked up. Like, <laughs> I was like, Oh, I can't relate to that, but people do, you know, and so I, I think the approach of assuming beauty in the person and then just letting, helping them uh, release some of their inherent capacity is just a really benevolent way to approach coaching. Um, but it's not, it's not that common. Sonny, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. And 
just want to give you a chance to kind of close out, leave anyone with any final thoughts, or I know that we've probably got a lot of folks that are really interested in how they can find out more about your work and, and what you do. So any, anything they should keep in mind? Well, I was thinking about your audience. They're mostly facilitators, right? They're people who are interested in that practice. Yeah, we, we our listeners are facilitators as well as leaders that are interested in these techniques and how they can improve their meetings and 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 um, the you know their employee experience. Uh, I think um, generally the, the audience has grown into just a general appreciation of how meetings could be better. Yeah, you're so good at what you do. If people are interested in it, a lot, I mean, you and I covered so many great topics that I'm like, oh, is it is our time up? It's so sad. But uh, DeepSelfDesign.com has some good resources on it. And my other business that is the original venture is SunnyBrownInc.com. Those are both resources. And you can find me all over the internet. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com.